Welcome to the podcast dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. Today we have cycle sports, that's new by the way, Alex Wild. Alex, it's been a long time since we've had you on the podcast. Yeah, good to be back. Yeah, man. Great to have you. Also, last week, we were supposed to record this podcast due to a string of of terrible illnesses and everything else to the family. We weren't able to do it. That was the first podcast I think we missed in, geez, like two and a half years or something in terms of a week. So uh, we're doing some makeup work here. Alex, I want to spend time today talking to you about the past year. Next year is exciting because you're back into the Lifetime Grand Prix. Um you aren't saying this. This is me. I want to make this clear, but they got the sense back into their head and you're bet you're into the Lifetime Grand Prix. So Alex didn't say that. That was me. Uh, I'm excited to, that you're back in that series because, uh, and I don't know if you're planning to contest the whole series or anything else, but it really lends toward what I think like your, your physiology and what really makes you unique as an athlete. So it'll be really cool. Uh, you're still on specialized bikes and everything else, which is great. You still are obviously a specialized employee, but last year you had like a lot of changes. Um, uh, so you've, and we've covered this on the podcast before, but you switched coaches uh, to Jim Miller, and that's the coach that that we've spoken, we've had on the podcast before. You can look at the episode that we've had with Jim. Uh, you started targeting more cross country marathon World Cup races, which that's a burgeoning series too. It's growing, I think, right now, and and you started focusing on that series as well. You kind of like shifted a lot of focus. And you had, in your own words, if you go onto Alex's Instagram, you can see it was a year of ups and downs. Like uh, you had some highs, some serious highs, and then some serious lows. <clears throat> so I want to take some time. And for those that don't know, I know Alex seems like a robot in terms of his ability to hold power. And yes, he has a crazy high functional threshold power and all those other things. But you're a regular guy. Uh, you have a job. You got a family. You have two fur kiddos. Um, <laughs> you have a lot you're just you're you're more average in a lot of respects in terms of the life that you lead compared to most professionals that we would have on the podcast here so i want to take time to talk about what you've learned because i think that that can be relevant for a lot of us um game with that absolutely yeah i think i try to make myself as relatable as possible because for me the goal is not to say like oh he has a crazy high functional threshold power i can never do that i'd rather people see that he works a full-time job just like me he's married and trying to have you know a real life with his family just like me but he also can compete so regardless of what level you do that at whatever your ftp is my goal is to make it so you're like oh i can do leadville if he can i can kind of thing so love it okay i want to talk uh you started off the year you got fifth at sea otter um absolutely like a showing that like, Hey, maybe this guy should be in the lifetime grand prix. Um, really good performance. That's a hometown race for you. Everything else. Uh, then you go into like doing marathon world cups and you're racing, um, over in Europe. Those are like, uh, you have bad call up positions. It's challenging everything else. So I want to talk about that first. Okay. So bad call up positions, um, because, and the way that it works, um, can you explain really like how you get a good call up position and why that matters at these races that you were doing over in Europe? Yeah. Uh, maybe back up a second first and just, mm -hmm. I guess after finding out from lifetime that I wasn't in for last year for 2023, I kind of tried to use it as an opportunity to race some different stuff. Um, I know my passion lies on mountain bikes. Uh, I enjoy gravel, but I guess to a, a, a limited extent, like I'd rather my calendar be mainly mountain bikes filled in with some cool gravel races rather than the other way around. 
So I kind of looked at the season and was like, you know, I really want to, I would be lying if I didn't say I went to Sea Otter to prove that I should be on that lifetime Grand Prix start list. And I feel like I made that point and I, I told everyone, like I said, my piece, you know, I had a bone to pick with lifetime for not picking me. I showed that I should be in the series and and that was kind of like water under the bridge after that point. I said, mm. I said what I wanted to say and I did what I wanted to do. And after that, I took the opportunity to go to Europe for three weeks and and do those marathon world cups and marathon UCI races. And like you said, it's very similar to XCO. So you have a world ranking based on points. The more points you have, the higher your ranking in the world. And then essentially they rank you by that. So if you're ranked number one in the world, you're the first call up to second. If third's not there, but fourth is, then fourth is the third call up. So essentially everybody's there. They're ranked by their world ranking. And going into it, I had no UCI marathon points. So I think I was 112th on the grid at Nova Mesto, which oh I was blown away by. One, that course is amazing. Two, we had more starters in the marathon than the XCO, which for, wow. for the first World Cup of the season in Europe was a big deal. But the goal there was obviously like it's it's kind of freeing in a way because you don't start on the front row. So it's easy to not make a results-based goal. It's just a, let's see how far up we can go and always try to finish in front of our start position. And one of the first goals, something that I feel like I've struggled with is to race at the level at which I train. And so that's what those races were for was just to see, can we put out the power we know we're capable of in these races? And we were checking those boxes. You know, even an elbow, I had a little bit of jet lag at the end, but we were, we were at the front at the beginning at Nova Mesto. I went from 112th. I think I finished 36th, but it was as high as top 15. So we were, awesome. we were performing where I know I'm capable of. So I think those goals were the big ones. And then after that, we did a, I think it's a four, yeah, four day stage race in Belgium, which is awesome. And, um, actually Andrew Lesperons from the lifetime grand prix was there as well, which was awesome to have a little bit of North America camaraderie and, uh, Haley Smith as well on the women's side who ended up winning, um, but was getting top fives there. Um, and then I got a flat tire and kind of messed me up, but at the same time, it was like, it was cool to see that I was top five in a stage race in Europe. And the nice part about that one is it started with the time trial. So that's why the call up didn't matter. So you were, you oh, were yeah. gridded for the time trial based on your ranking, but then the call ups the next day were based on finishing. And I think I got fourth in the time trial. So then I was on the front row for stage two. So oh, nice. going from there, it was cool to, to know that I could have finished top five in a European stage race and was fighting up there for the front. So that's pretty yeah, sweet. It was a it was a rad trip, but I mean, as I'm sure we'll get to, I, I paid the price for for all that racing combined with I was working remote out there. So between the races during the weeks, I was working and then racing on the weekends. So it was a bit of a hectic schedule with time zones and trying to get everything yeah. done around training and travel. But honestly, yeah. just such an awesome experience and something. I don't know, Im important to me within the racing is to see new places. Um, I went with my buddy and teammate, Will, and we just rented a car starting in Italy. And then we just drove, we drove from Italy to Nova Mesto, and then we drove from Nova Mesto to Belgium. So for me, it's just a super cool way to see new places and to kind of explore. 
That's cool. I want to talk about the differences and how does the race look different when you are racing without expectation and without a result goal versus when you are racing, like I need to finish at this position, something else. How does it look different? What's your power profile like? How is that different? Like what sort of decisions are you making that are unique now? Um, it depends on the course, but I, I guess if we take Nova Mesta, for example, it started with like a 10 to 12 minute climb. Essentially there was a climb and then kind of a false flat and then a climb again before it kind of got into the proper course. And so when you're at the front, you're doing a high power, but kind of like a high enough power that if anybody has to do more than this, they're really burning a match, which mm. read into it. That was me. Um, <laughs> cause so, you were coming from behind. Yeah. So, so you had to, in order to catch that pace, you obviously have to go faster than that, exactly. Right? So imagine these guys are doing threshold for 10 to 12 minutes and to make up a hundred positions to get up to the front in those 10 or 12 minutes, you're doing essentially like somewhere between threshold and VO two. I think my 11, I think it was 11 minutes or something like that. It was 434 Watts. So Ooh. really kind of bottom end of VO two there. Whereas yeah. at the front, it's not easy, but maybe they're doing equivalent for me. If I was at the front, maybe 380 to 400, right? So it's still a match. You still have to have the power to be up there, but it's a different effort. And that's kind of where I paid the price that second lap when we went up that climb again. Then it's like to try to dig and do it again is really hard. And so, but if you had, if you had just done the same power as the leaders, but back in 112th call up position, I'd argue that because exactly. of being behind so many riders that your finishing position wouldn't have been 37th. It would have been much further back in the Exactly. Field, right? So, so you, you play a different game in terms of in that situation with the big climb at the beginning, there's a lot to be had to be able to move up because that's the closest everyone's going to be on the course. And then from there, it's just a matter of kind of using the groups. And so once we got into the single track, it's really fighting that urge to be impatient almost where mm. like you're in the single track, you've done that big effort and like you're riding kind of the adrenaline, the high from, from passing so many people and you want to just keep passing people, keep passing people. But the problem is if you do that, by the time you get to another proper fitness section, like a, a climb, you're, you've been burning matches the whole way and they haven't, and then you pay that price. So it's that fine line of on the descent. Like if someone's going a little slower, can you cut the inside of the corner or can you do like a late apex and get in front of that rider for essentially free in terms of energy or, and kind of do those things. And then once you get to the next open section, it's like, okay, here's where we can really make it happen. So it's kind of, making those moves when that person might bring you off the back of this big group. Cause those 30 riders were still, we were still all together. That's the front now. So yeah. if that rider is going to bring you off that group by not descending well, or he's, you know, blown on like a rolly flat section, you make those moves then. But if that person's, you know, perfectly tracking the rider in front of them and so forth, so on and so forth, then it's kind of just being patient and staying there to somewhere again, where you can put that effort in and get five or 10 spots instead of one and kind of just, Ooh, that's a really good perspective. Finding, looking for opportunities to gain five to 10 rather than scrapping for table scraps of just getting that one position. That's really but good. It, but it's also like a uh, art of finding those positions without using energy. So even when the, like when that group of thirties, like 
doing the accordion effect, right? As it comes back together, some people just hit the brakes and kind of just, you know, roll into the front rider in front of them. But if you kind of roll to the right of the group and keep that momentum, you might actually find yourself at the front of that 30 person group without having to put out any power. You just kept moving when everybody else was kind of scrunching up. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's gambling a little bit, right? Because if you're at the back of the group, it could easily split five riders in front of you and you're not going to be able to make that on a descent. But it's the cards I was dealt being starting in hundred and whatever. Yeah. So you're not going into this thinking that like, <laughs> I'm going to have like, an this is going to be my power by the end of the day. I'm going to stick within this. You're approaching it with big question marks. And you, but the one thing that you need to do, you know, is make up as many spots as you can early on. And then you need to be wise and just focus on moving up throughout the race as much as you can. You know that you might blow up later on, but you're not counting on blowing up, but you're also certainly not counting on having perfect energy in reserve because you paced really well. Instead, it's just, you're focusing on the actions that you Mm -hmm. need to do as you go through the race. That's that, that, that seems like the, the approach correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. And just, I guess, curiosity in general, right? It's, it's a freeing feeling to kind of be an unknown quantity in the u.s like we all been racing each other for years and everyone knows everyone whereas nova mesto is like i i know these guys in terms of like you know there's the marathon guys that have been racing a long time and some of them come over for leadville whatever but like i can just race and just see what happens and i think that was a freeing feeling especially with the goal of just at the beginning of the season to try and just see what power we can be capable of in a race and can we get the most out of myself before we start going into something with like a fitness or a results goal. I want to talk about the balancing part you mentioned with the job and everything else. Um, What did you learn last year about carrying a full-time job? Um, and, and I want to be clear that like, there's, there's a wide spectrum of full-time jobs. And I know somebody listening to this, it's 70 hours or something else, but Alex works, um, and pardon me if this is derogatory to anybody in particular, but Alex works a proper desk jockey job, right? In the sense that you're a spreadsheets man and you're in spreadsheets all day and that's your job. Um, and it's a, it's a 40 hour a week sort of job. Uh, sometimes it's more, sometimes as you've mentioned before, Alex, sometimes you'll be able to squeeze some time off and and be able to get some training, uh, with your vacation time, all that sort of thing. So, but it's very much like a normal career job that a lot of us would have for some context on it. Um, so what did you learn this past year about balancing a full-time job and training? Um, the training for me, fortunately, and on purpose, I've carved out for myself an individual contributor role in terms of, like you said, it's spreadsheets. So with like the different time zones are, I work in global. So I work everywhere from, you know, teammates in Taiwan, South Africa, Spain, Netherlands to the U S. So with all those different time zones spanning, I do have a unique ability to be able to ride if i ride for four hours i can kind of just do the work before and do the work after but i've definitely sacrificed for that i've been offered you know management positions multiple times at specialized and turned them down because i'm interested in furthering my career as a cyclist and don't think i can do direct reports the justice that i'd want to as a people manager and also the time 
that it would be in meetings and other things like that would make it harder for me to fit in that training. So I think first and foremost, I always tell people if, if you don't make it a priority, no one else will. So I've made career decisions around my desire to race professionally at this point in my life. And then just in, in general, I think I've, I've learned, I just can't race as much as the people that do full-time racing, which is hard for me because I personally like with the Nova Mesto races and I want to do like races like BC bike race and whiskey 50 is always fun every year. So it's like, I struggle with not doing all the races because I just legitimately love riding my bike and racing my bike. And I'd love to do all the races. So this year we've really one pared it down a little bit on the races, but also what I identified as really hard for me from like a family and work standpoint has been back to back to back weekends. One, three weeks away from home in Europe was hard, but also racing every weekend for like five out of six weekends and trying to work and trying to have a family just didn't work. So this year we've really split up the races and tried to avoid back to back weekends. If we can, we only have three of them, I believe. So I'm going to do sea otter and whiskey 50 this year, which are back to back sea otter is a home race for me. So I don't actually have to leave home. So that kind of doesn't count in my mind when we get down to September, it'll be Schwam again, followed by worlds followed by rad dirt, which will be a big block. But hopefully if I'm in a strong enough position in the grand prix, I have the option to drop two races. So rad could be a question mark in terms of if I'm comfortable with where I am, I could go straight to little sugar and not do that three weekend in a row, seeing how we feel. And then at the end of the year in Arkansas, we have little sugar mountain bike and then big sugar gravel. So those will be the only times I race back to back. So I think minimizing that, but also maximizing the time between races. So I guess to run through my quickly my full schedule for 2024 we'll start in andalusia stage race in spain i'm doing that with a buddy of mine danny van wagner and we're gonna great do, athlete yeah and he's awesome relatable to this situation father yep. and, and <laughs> he, he and takes everything. it one step further he's got a a full-time Kid job in finance and a little child and somehow puts out more volume than i do but he also wakes <laughs> up at 4 15 every day so dude's a machine Super excited to be riding with him and have him on the cycle sport team that I've built. We're going to do Spain. So that's a six day stage race. And then I'll come back and the next race will be sea otter. Then we'll do whiskey 50 unbound is in June. Um, we're undecided on whether we'll race that or not. We'll kind of decide that as we get closer. One thing we did learn is that we need a break and kind of to treat it as two seasons. So we'll either race until unbound and then take the break or we'll take the break after whiskey and then build up to Tusher next. And then after Tusher, we'll race uh, Tahoe Trail, which is just a local one. We always do altitude camp in Tahoe, so might as well hit that one. And then August comes around, we do Leadville. And then Danny and I will go back to Switzerland for Swiss Epic, which we're really oh, excited about. Amazing. Um, and then September, like I said, those three in a row, it'll be Schwam again world championships marathon which is in snowshoe this year and then rad dirt in colorado and then to finish the year i'll do little sugar and big sugar in arkansas nice um i want to talk about unbound you mentioned uh so in 
you can go and read Alex's report, but effectively, like the mud straight thing, you ended up actually navigating your way through that. I'd I'd say rather impressively. There were no derailers, you know, strung across the ground or anything else. You stuck to the grass. Grass is fast. <laughs> you got through that whole thing. <clears throat> Uh, not like, you know, at the front of the, the course or anything, it certainly affected you. But then at hour three, you said that you like experienced like the worst bonk symptoms of your life, which, and for people that like, that doesn't make sense. We know Alex, Alex carb loaded to a numerical number. He <laughs> measured his fit, like, you know, all these things, like what do you, do you have any insight as to what happened on that day at unbound to cause you to at hour three? effectively get into a, a, a like a hyperglycemic like truly depleted state where even simple cognition was tough for you yeah i'm not sure entirely i mean if i had to guess it would be that i wasn't processing carbs for one reason or another like gi distress or you know lingering sickness from coming back from europe or because i got sick at the belgian stage race so that that would be my best guess is that I just wasn't processing the carbs I was putting in because three hours, and I think at the time it was around 300 normalized for those first three hours, would put me right around kind of where you start to deplete what your body can hold. So my best guess is that what I was putting in just wasn't actually getting processed and being used. Um, But yeah, that was probably the worst bonk I've ever had. I'll never forget (laughs) the the lead women went by me and Sophia saw me and I didn't register it for like six seconds where she like looked back and she's like, are you okay? Uh, I just like, people were talking to me as they went by because they'd recognize me. And it would honestly take me like three to five seconds to register someone had talked to me. Like it was Oof. just kind of surreal. Like one of those desert scenes from a movie where the person's just like walking along in this like baking sun. It wasn't even <laughs> that hot at this point, but it was just like, I was just kind of like dawdling along, like barely recognizing what was happening. So it was just, it was a weird feeling that I don't have a full explanation for, but I mean, kind of write it off as we know how to fuel and, you know, some more rest coming into it this year it shouldn't be an issue. And I've, I've done unbound before. So it's not like I can't ride for 10 hours. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was like your iPhone 15 pro became an iPhone three there for a while. Yeah. 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 I was on half a G. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I assume the cumulative fatigue from all the racing piled into, you know, being in the spring, a lot of illnesses are going around and it's probably somewhat of a perfect storm that then accumulated on a day that was, you know, super big. Um, Yeah. So you mentioned this year that you've learned that you might have to, like at that point in the season leading into there, that you might very well skip that race or something else. But the main priority, whether you skip the race or not, is that you have to take a break in between uh, all the training. How long is that break? Because there's this perspective out there that pros only take off one week. And then after (laughs) that, they go straight back into racing. So, so how, how long of a break is it um, in terms of like, what could be like the shortest or longest would you anticipate taking a break mid season like this? Uh, I guess we can back up to my between season breaks to bust mm-hmm. that myth, but I almost take the entire month of November off. The first two weeks are very, sh- not strict, but like I just won't ride because I'm 
blown and don't feel like it. And then kind of until December starts, I can ride when I want to like hike when I want to do the gym if I really feel like it. But normally it's just like, if Jen wants to go for a hike, I'll go for a hike. And if my brother wants to go ride, I'll go ride. Normally do Thanksgiving day ride with my brother and stuff like that. So November is pretty much nothing. So I take a full month every year just to reset. Um, in terms of splitting the year, it'd probably be a week to two weeks. Um, it kind of depends where it is. If we do it after Unbound, since Tusher comes up so quick, it'd probably be a week. And then if we did it after Whiskey, it would probably be two weeks. And that just might be the conversation we have, right? Like, I think the reason I get so excited about the Grand Prix is I don't see a weakness race for me. I think mm-hmm. I can be consistently, I think I can top five every single race in the Grand Prix. And so if we have to skip unbound for that greater picture, then I think it's still worth it. But I think it's a matter of figuring out, does that make sense? Or mm-hmm. would unbound be a good opportunity to get another result on the board and we feel good and we can take the rest after? But yeah i mean sea otter i've shown i can be top five tusher i've been top 10 leadville i've been top 10 so i think if we skip unbound i wouldn't be too upset because then we go to altitude and we go climbing which is also great and then schwam again i haven't done yet but i mean i'm super excited about a two-hour mountain bike race that sounds like a crit and then Mm -hmm. um i haven't also done rad or big sugar yet but they both sound super fun. So I think for me, it's just a a call on how the body's feeling. And if we want to be extra safe with that, um, I'm currently leaning towards skipping it just because one is a big race, but also where it falls, I would rather take the two weeks after whiskey and make it a big break and then have like seven to eight weeks to build up to Tusher and be really good for that. So I think the outcome of, of the changes we made is really to be at our best for those big races and we really don't race much else like we race tahoe trail um whiskey 50 we can carry the peak from sea otter pretty easily so like the other races we're doing are kind of clustered around those a races like little sugar as well so we're not really doing much else besides these grand prix races because there's a big focus i want to be top five in the series by the end of the year yeah this is uh this inner season break uh and this breaking that you see exist here I think is something that more amateur athletes should do. Um and now I know that what you're thinking is like well I get sick because of kids being in school or <laughs> I can't work or I can't train because of work travel or any of that other things. So you're probably thinking, well, I'm already getting that time off, but I think that it's important to understand the difference between time, not training and then time recovering. Uh, cause they're very different. And in this time off, uh, you really want to focus on recovering. So, uh, assume you could quantify all the energy and effort and resources that you put into training in a typical week, uh, reinvest all of that into recovery and relaxing rather than just allowing those resources to be spent on, you know, the allostatic load side of things. So like excessive stress or anything else that you might feel with work trips or something else, or heck, yep. even like a Disneyland vacation. That's like the, <laughs> that you should peak for that, not consider that say. like, you know, a recovery time. Um, 300 TSS. And, yeah, exactly. Every day. Um, but if you can 
go into your season and you can actually like on trainer road, we built out the time off feature. So you can click on a day and then you can add in time off. And what it will do is it will tell adaptive training, Hey, this athlete does not need to train this week. They need to recover and it will block it out. And then it'll recalculate all of your training based on that. And I think that that's, that's something that I do. So right now, forgive me, I have three off, I call them zero weeks. And I have three zero weeks planned into my training this year so that, and it's typically after a big event, I right then I put in a zero week and will I be as fast in two weeks from then? No, that's okay. Um, it'll stop me from getting sick. Uh, it'll stop me from getting to the point where I'm plateaued and demotivated with training. Um, it all helps. Like it's all about finding the right balance. Um, you know, yeah, I think for, for me, it's been treating rest the same way I treat intervals where it's like, I always want to be at the top of the range for intervals. And the way I've kind of told myself this year, and I include myself in, in the group that doesn't rest as well as they should is I do it the opposite. I try to shoot for the bottom of the range, like almost give myself that excuse to be lazy. So it's mm-hmm. like, you know, if it's one ninety to two twenty, it's like, okay, one eighty five kind of thing. Yeah. So it's like doing less on those days is more. And I think kind of making that the goal for me makes it analytical where it's like, you know, on interval day, if it says 370, 390, you want to be exactly on 380. So it's like, I think taking that same approach, but the opposite way to rest has kind of given me a goal with it, which has been good. So that's been my, my go-to is just try to be as, do as little as possible on those days. Yeah. I want to talk about two other races you did that year. Crusher at the Tusher, 10th place. Downeyville Classic, 4th place. <clears throat> two very different races. Crusher and the Tusher starts out with a mat, just gigantic climb, big descent, loop around the valley. Then you go back up that huge <laughs> climb. And whereas Downeyville starts out with a very sustained and continuous climb then after that a very long and physical and exhausting descent with some hard punches and when we say punches we're talking you know multi-minute climb still uh that, that you have within there i know that crusher and the tusher has to be respected very differently than downeyville because of that really long climb coming out but you approach these two races really differently you at Crusher and the Tusher, you mentioned the fact that you had raced it before, you collected some intel from that experience, and you blew up uh, sky high on on the final climb coming out cold to crush. You blew up coming out of there previously. So this time, you are thinking to be more conservative. Whereas at Downeyville, you, in your words, you wanted to play high elevation chicken with Keegan and basically <laughs> see who would let up first, right? two totally different approaches where one's like very specific and measured and calculated. The other one is just like, let's just see how high these fireworks can go. So how, how did you decide between that? And I guess maybe let's start with Downeyville strangely, because the crusher one makes sense, right? Like, you know, you want to respect that everything else. What made you decide to throw caution to the wind at Downeyville? Was it just simply the course that there's not a big climb at the end or what was it? As more that I consider it, a B race in terms of where it lies on the calendar. Like I said, I wanted my, my joint goal for the year was to make a case that I should be in the lifetime grand prix, which the Tusher is part of as well as do the UCI marathon stuff. And Downeyville was more just my brother wanted me to do it because he was doing it that year and it's a fun race and it hasn't been on for years and I love it. So 
I think when I realized Keegan was racing it as well, I think it was just a unique opportunity to just go for it. And if I blew up, it didn't really matter. If I got 10th at Downeyville or 20th even, I wouldn't regret it. Whereas if I didn't try going with him, then I would never know. And so I, I just committed to whatever Keegan did I was going to do and then went from there. And I mean, it was successful because I think it made me realize that I do belong there. I mean, mm-hmm. we probably did maybe the first 10 to 15 minutes together. And then I kind of was like, this is, you know, this is my limit. I'm going to just kind of keep pinning it here and see what happens. And I think he got another 10 seconds or so. And we kind of just played that the whole way up the climb. And then Cole came back and Cole and I did the the uh, back end of the climb together. And to finish a 40-ish minute climb within half a minute of Keegan is, I mean, decent considering that guy wins almost everything he lines up for. So Mm -hmm. I think uh, we went into the descent and I made a few mistakes on suspension setup and got a, a bunch of hand pump going down. But I mean, I, I never feel bad about losing a descent to Cole, Keegan, and Braden, who are probably the three best descenders in the Grand Prix. So, I mean, you win some, you lose some, but definitely learned a lot. And for me, it was a good piece of information to know that I can climb with the best. Yeah. Race prioritization. Like that's the principle that I'm getting from there. It's so important to not let a B become an A, let a C become an A, you know? Um, and because instead you aren't looking for the result. Instead, you were looking for learnings specifically and to see where you were at. And that's what you got from it. And looking back, it's not about the result still for you. It's still what you learned. So like, cause there's sometimes Alex, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I I don't let a B race become an A race when I'm doing the race. But then afterward, (laughs) sometimes I do because then I look at the result and I'm like beating myself up over a result at a B race when really I shouldn't be. Um, If the goal wasn't to get a result, the goal was to get something else. I need to make sure I keep that present. So um, really good example of even at the top level of doing that. Okay. I want to talk now about for you, you went to XCM Worlds. You got your best world's finish there. Um, you ended up getting sick at Leadville, which for you, I know how personally devastating that must have been for you because you love Leadville. You've raced there many times. You've done the Leadville stage race. You perform well at that race. Um, and I think a lot of that comes down to like, you know, the the way that you execute a race, you know how to execute a race in those circumstances. It's not like there's some magic that makes you more beneficial there. But you had like the the highs and lows. How do you manage, I guess, how did you come back from the low of Leadville? And then have you learned anything about managing like highs as well uh, throughout the year? Um, As with any elite athlete, I probably manage the highs the same way where we forget about them in about five minutes (laughs) and move on to the (laughs) next thing. So I'd say I'm probably worse at managing highs than I am at managing lows. But just in terms of I don't really acknowledge them fully. In terms of, I mean, I still look back in, at Worlds, which, like you said, was my best result in 36th, I think, or 37th yeah. in the world. Yeah. So it's like on paper, you know, lot, lots of people in the world. So a yeah. good result. And I always look back on, I had the legs to be top 20 there that day. And I made a very basic 
nutrition mistake, which is very unlike me. So that's all I remember from the race. So yeah, probably, probably need to learn how to manage lows rather than manage highs. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, it got, it was a super muddy race in Scotland. And so a lot of people got sick, whether it's Giardia or some sort of other, you know, gut issue. I had flu-like symptoms on the drive back to my mom's house that afternoon and just felt like a bag of rocks, essentially. We tried to see if I could race Leadville. I was still, I came home and I have an altitude tent and I was sleeping in that. I was doing all the things to be ready for it just in case, you know, I turned around and it didn't. Um, definitely big FOMO, especially because it looks like the best Leadville course conditions we've had in probably decades with like the cooler temperatures, which always do better for me, you know, a little bit grippier dirt. And just like you said, that race suits me down to the ground. I'm not sure entirely why, but even people who live at altitude seem to struggle at 10,000 feet. So it seems to equalize it because I feel like, not that I feel great at 10,000 feet, but I can manage it quite well. So I think still searching to put it all together. Like you mentioned, I did, I've done the lifetime um, stage race for the, for Leadville and I've done each climb individually. So the first stage is you go out to Columbine, second stage, you climb Columbine and come down and the third stage is you come back. So it splits Leadville into three days essentially. And I've done like the KOM times before Keegan did, um, Columbine this last time on all those climbs. So it's just a matter of me trying to piece all that together and i think that's the puzzle we're playing with this year in terms of i know i have the capacity but how do we do that in one six hour day yeah so did you take this in stride or was it devastating to you to miss that race this year and if so how'd you rebound uh i try to take it in stride but i'm i don't think i would have been where keegan was that that performance was just like sometimes I look at Keegan's numbers and I say, yeah, that's, that's attainable for me. But what he did at Leadville was just something else and a very special performance. So I think in a way the win being out of reach kind of helped, but at the yeah. same time, I think a podium at Leadville is still a big goal of mine and very possible. So I think definitely FOMO from that perspective. And maybe if I was in the Grand Prix, it would have been even worse. But mm. I think in the moment, I was just so tired that it was kind of a relief not to have to hop on a plane and go to Leadville. And then, you know, afterwards, you see all the hype around Leadville and everyone like, you know, posting stories and photos and stuff about their experience and miss not only the race, but like I love going back to the line at nine hours and 12 hours and kind of seeing everybody fight for their buckles. And this is what they train for all year, or this is their first or their 10th Leadville. And, kind of just absorbing that. So I think I missed missed the community and the race, but I think it was one of those that I don't look back and say I should have raced, which I guess is what makes it okay for me is it it wasn't like a moment of weakness where I just didn't want to. It yeah. was that I shouldn't. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean good good example of looking at it from an outside in perspective. Uh the end of the season you got 19th at the cross country marathon event at snowshoe, uh, home, home world cup there. And, but you were managing late season fatigue. And I want to ask you, how does your, how is your performance limited? What does it feel like when you have late season fatigue? And then how do you end up changing the way you race? 
Um, I would say after Worlds and that Leadville, I never quite felt myself again. Um, I'd say you feel a little foggy, but also like you, someone's just like forcibly lowered your FTP. So it's mm-hmm. like, but the heart rate doesn't match normally. So it's normally just, you can't race at that high level. And I think stubbornly it doesn't change how I race because <laughs> especially those late season races, it was marathon nationals. And then it was the world cup. And both of those, it was like, there's, there's one goal and it's to be as high up as possible. And so I think we, I tried to race with a half deck of cards and it didn't work mm-hmm. out, but I think, yeah, that's, that's the, the big goal. I think that's happened the last two years for me where late season fatigue and burnout have affected me for September, October. So I think that's a big goal this year. Again, going back to the rest between those quote unquote two seasons of the year to try to be good all the way through October. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about two other details here. So number one, on the nutrition side of things, we've talked about this before on the podcast. Um, when Alex gets kitted up, he already has sweat stains um, in the summer. So like <laughs> uh, when Alex and I have been riding together, I've, it's like a fun game of like, is that white text or is that just salt on Alex's jersey uh, sort of a thing? You You lose a ton of sodium. Um, you actually went through the sweat testing protocol and everything else. Uh, and you, uh, what did you learn from that? How much, I guess, sodium do you lose? How much fluid do you lose? And we're talking about like per hour and then, you know, for, per units of, of whatever you're losing there. Um, and then how have you changed your nutrition strategy based off that? Because, and I want to be clear, somebody listening to this is probably thinking like, oh, forgive me, Alex just needed to take in electrolyte pills or something. And no, it's. Alex is running into a weird traffic jam scenario where it's like, well, I need this much fluid per hour and I need this many carbs, but I also need just absolutely like salt lick levels of sodium. How do I do all of that together at the same time? Like you were an extreme case. So what did you learn from the sweat testing and then what'd you change? Yeah. Uh, the sweat test told me that I sweat 2,200 milligrams per liter of sweat. Um, also subjectively That's huge. Yeah. So the chart ends, I think at like 2000 or 2100. So it's literally (laughs) off the charts. (laughs) And most people aren't at the top of the chart. Keep in mind, like we're talking substantially lower. Like if a person is losing somewhere around 750 milligrams, like that, that's like, yeah, okay. That's normal. Right. Like, um, that it would be normal, maybe even to high, I think, uh, Mm -hmm. forgive me, those that are experts on the, 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 the situation, but 2200 is just, yeah, quite literally off the charts. Yeah, so that combined with the fact that I sweat quite a lot of volume, obviously that varies based on intensity and heat, but you think it's not obscene to hear of someone losing a liter to a liter and a half per hour in summer. Mm -hmm. So we're getting up to almost three and a half grams of sodium per hour that you're losing. So Oh my gosh. I think, like you said, it's it's always hard to try to make sure you get enough carbs, get enough fluid and get enough sodium and try to triangulate that. Um, one trick I have done is I really enjoy the precision hydration tabs. Um, I'll just add those to a high carb drink mix. So like if I'm using capsules, 
Mm-hmm. So like if I'm yep, using like same. a Never Second C90, that only has 200 milligrams of sodium, which isn't enough for me. I will add a one 1500 tab, which to be clear, the serving size is two. So that's 750 milligrams of sodium. That will then make it 90 grams of carbs and almost a gram of sodium. And so most of the time, if I do that with a gel, that's like 1150 milligrams of sodium per hour. That's good for me. Obviously, there'll be really hot races. And then sometimes I'll even switch to the precision hydration drink mix, which for 60 grams of carbs is a thousand milligrams of sodium. So one gram. So you can do that to try to get 1500 if you're on one of those sweat days. Um, from I talked to those guys in depth about this, from what they have told me, shooting to replace 50 to 70% is a good place to start. So on if sodium. I'm. Yeah, of what you lose. So, like, say I am losing thirty five hundred per hour. That means I should try to replace seventeen fifty to fourteen fifty. Oh, sorry, twenty four fifty, somewhere in that range. So, two is a round number to make it work. So, if I was shooting for one hundred twenty grams of carbs, I could try to do two bottles of their hydration mix, which is the sixty gram carb, one gram of sodium. So, it's really just trying to. I think the the biggest variable for me that I haven't found a good way to track is that volume loss. Um, mm. I've done a few different sensors. Um, there's a Gatorade patch and then um, I forgot the name of the other one. It's like a green packaging, but I tried that and just subjectively doing the like weighing yourself test. It wasn't accurate or consistent so there wasn't a good Mm -hmm. way for me to consist like i'd love to just be able to stick something on my shoulder or whatever and like say i'm so i'm going to spain in a week right so i put that on during my training the days leading up to the race and then i'm like okay looks like i'm sweating about this much or this much when i'm doing tempo or whatever and then i could try to figure out what i would lose in the race and get a little bit closer but that for me is the hardest part to do without just doing an old fashioned scale test. But I find those quite hard as well, just because how much of that is, you know, you were losing to heat when you're burning fuel versus like the uncomfortable feeling of you have to pee during your ride. But if you pee during your ride, then how do you know how much it weighs and all that fun stuff. So I think it's just, that's the biggest variable for me is the volume that I'm losing. So, yeah. Yeah, you found a good solution for that. The amount of carbon, so like in you having such a high threshold means that you burn so much too. Uh, So like in terms of carbohydrate that you're burning. So like you said, you're losing a lot of water for every carbohydrate or for every stored part of glycogen, I should say, that you're actually using. So you lose a lot of water in that. So really keen observation that the weighing test is sometimes can like overstate the amount of fluid that you might actually be losing just purely to sweat. Yeah, it can yeah. be hard because like the only time it really makes sense is with exercises less than two hours. And normally for me, that's like a 90 minute spin for recovery. So it's also not going to replicate yeah. my volume. I'm going to sweat if I'm doing like a race style effort. So yeah, yeah, for me, it's hard to figure out that volume piece. So I, I tend to hover right around one to 1.5 grams of sodium per hour to shoot for that. And how many carbs per hour typically are you trying to take in? I do 90 to 120. I normally figure out a way to do 90 at a minimum in terms of like hydration ag- agnostic, I guess, in terms of no matter what, 
I'm going to get 90 in. And then the, the 90 to 120 is kind of mixed in with that sodium. If I need a little bit more, like if I have scratch in my bottles or whatever, and I just want like a little swig, maybe it's 10 grams of carbs, but I don't need it for the fueling side. I think if I'm getting 90, obviously it helps a little bit to have hundred over 90 or 120 over 90, especially over long efforts. But like, for example, I did a really big six out six hours of work. I think the total ride time was seven hours and we averaged 280 watts raw for six hours. So 6,000 kJs. And I was then doing a gel every 40 minutes and which was 30 grams per carbs. And then I had in my bottles, um, scratch a double serving of scratch of 40 grams of carbs. So it was about 105 grams of carbs per hour for seven hours. Yeah. Wow. Um, so the takeaways that I'm finding here is that you, you don't try to replace all the sodium you lose. You're aiming for somewhere around 50 to 70%. Um, well, I guess first takeaway is figure out what it is that you're losing and you mm-hmm. did that. Um, and then 50 to 70% replenishment on that. Then you're trying to take in 90 to 120 grams of carbs on particularly hot days. You'll switch that up. And sometimes you might run two packets of that precision hydration mix. It sounds like yep. so in that way you're taking in 120 grams an hour and you're taking in geez, I guess it'd be two grams or even more than that possibly, um, of sodium. So you're varying it based on the conditions, but your goal is that 50 to 70% on sodium. And then you're still, especially because of the high power that you have, you have to hit a high mark in terms of carbs per hour. Yep. Uh, can I talk, can we talk bike setup really quick too, because yeah. you raced an interesting bike and I, I don't know how often or like what decision criteria you use to be able to pick for you. You have the Epic Evo mm-hmm. and then you also have the Epic, um, world cup yep. and the world cup is kind of a hybrid bike in terms of like a full suspension hardtail. It has, uh, like a, a strut system built into the top tube. Then, then like flex stays in the back, but it's, it's, it's feels real snappy, like a hard mm-hmm. tail, but still gives you compliance, but you can change the suspension settings. It's got some weird terms like half gulp, full gulp and all that stuff. So, uh, but first, how did you decide which bike you'd use this year? People love to hear the tech stuff from you in particular on your bike. Um, more course dependent. I think none of the lifetime Grand Prix stuff is super technical on the mountain bike. Um, so I, this year I plan to race the world cup at all those events. Um, the way I run the World Cup is we spec it with a 110 fork. For me, that doesn't make sense. It kind of blends too much to an Evo at that mm-hmm. point. Um, in the rear, you have 75 mils of travel, but zero sag. So the, it's effectively supposed to treat like 100 millimeters of rear travel. So yeah. I... I dec- in, in, just to clarify that for people, if you have a 100 mil suspension in the rear end, hundred mils of travel and you're running 25% sag, boom, you're down to your 75 millimeters of travel. So yep. that, that, the sag is the difference there. Yep. Yep. And, and definitely something to take into consideration when you're doing fit, uh, on the world cup, the nice thing is you can do a static fit. So if you wanted to pull your saddle offset from your road bike or your hardtail, you can do that on a world cup because you won't have any sag to take into consideration for like saddle setback from BB or anything like that. Um, so I, I decrease the, the amount of suspension in the front from 110 to 100, just the way I like to run it. Um, in the rear, I will run it uh, no gulp, but what I'll do is I weigh about 150 pounds. 
um, I'll set it to 135 and then press the negative chamber to bleed that. And then I'll keep reducing the chamber by three PSI to the point that I get just the littlest amount of sag. And as soon as I get that, I'll go back up to the next amount. So for me, that's about 112 PSI. What this does is you're sitting right on the cusp of that, that valve letting you compress the shock. And so for me, I found it to be a lot better on like chattery small bumps, very similar to like sea otter where like the trail isn't quite smooth and you want a little bit, so it doesn't feel like a hardtail bucking you around and you can still put out the power. But when you stand up to sprint on it, it'll still be firm. So it'll still feel like a hardtail. And so yeah. I do that with brain fully on in the front and about 58 PSI in the fork, but I tend to run my suspension a bit softer than most. Man, I really want to ride that. Or I've, I've parking lot tested that bike and it felt just like a hardtail, felt pretty cool. Um, uh, and then I guess for you this year, um, like you said, lifetime Grand Prix races, you'll probably be on that bike. Is there any other like equipment changes or anything else that you, um, like, I guess you're still wearing specialized shoes, helmet, all that stuff, uh, yeah. kits all the same, that sort of thing. Uh, DNA cycling still providing the kit. Uh, we'll have it shortly. So full, full announcement coming soon. I'm, I'm stoked on that. They did a really good job with this one and knocked it out of the park. Um, yeah. Yeah, helmets and shoes, specialized, Revolve components, specialized bikes, bike yoke droppers, SRAM suspension, cork power meters, rock shocks, suspension. What are you doing for chains? Because ice friction is uh is is not doing it, I hear, anymore. So. No, unfortunately. Well, I, I struggle to say unfortunately because I 100% support the decision, but Michael, the owner, take a, took a step back to spend more time with his family, which I 100% support, and they've... They've been a great sponsor for years. And like I said, I don't I don't approach any brand that I wouldn't pay my own money for. And Michael has always been in my corner and, you know, helped with icing cassettes, icing chain rings, getting chains shipped anywhere when I don't plan ahead. And I'll definitely miss the partnership and, you know, miss working with them and seeing him at the races, but wish him all the best. Obviously, spending time with his family is a a great reason to step away from a business. Um I do have one last shipment I just got from him that will get it's a, me. It's in a shipping probably, container <laughs> larger than your house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Set for life. I wish. Yeah. Uh, so that should get me through this year. Um, I will also be working with ceramic speed for bottom brackets and pulley wheels. I'm actually really excited. Sweet. They just released a transmission, um, derailleur cage, which looks super cool. Um, and talking to uh, Mike over there, what they're going for on the dirt is a really unique concept in terms of they're not necessarily going for a chain or a setup that gets you 10 watts, but I call it um, the sprinter effect. So like I remember watching Usain Bolt's documentary and they say the reason he was so good was that he just decelerated less than everybody else. Mm -hmm. So if you think about that in terms of chains, right, you have an optimized um, drivetrain. So you have a clean cassette, you have a ceramic speed bottom bracket, clean chain, clean, um, whatever chain ring. There we go. And then you have the, you know, the ceramic speed pulley wheels, the ceramic speed stuff may add 
one to three watts and you may say oh that's not that great but what they do is they make the seals on the bearings on their x stuff which is what they call their off-road stuff make it so nothing can get inside and slow it down so at the end of a day like leadville where someone's standard chain has now gotten eight to 12 watts slower and your setup has gotten one to three watts slower, you're now finishing the race where everyone else started the race. So you may have started with a one to three watt advantage, but you're ending with an eight to 12 watt advantage at the end of the race. So it's essentially making it so it doesn't degrade. And they're also doing special like race day greases. If you really want to get nerdy, you can blow out your bottom bracket and do a really light race day grease. They also do a long life and I believe a like a winter off season, thicker grease. So it can last all the way through, you know, winter training, but they'll do a lighter race day grease that you can put in there for a couple extra Watts as well. So I'll be doing a couple stuff on my Instagram, like little, little reels to show everybody kind of how I set that up for a race day and like optimize the bike. But yeah, I think some super exciting stuff. And if anybody's ever had a ceramic speed bottom bracket, you get the joy of just spinning your cranks and then they spin forever. So yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's good to hear companies looking at what happens after the race and drag then rather than drag in a lab, um, because, uh, gravel and mountain biking is far from a lab environment. Yeah. That's for works, sure, works so. for a TT, but not so much yeah, for gravel exactly. and mountain bikes. So yeah. yeah, excited to get that stuff and, and give it a try. Cool. Well, Alex, thanks, man. Um, for those that want to follow Alex, you can go to Alex Wild MTB on Instagram. Um, you can find him on there. Alex is always really open with his training and everything else. Even on Mondays, you can submit questions and he he sets aside some time to answer some questions. So um, Yeah, I've been doing that a, a little more sporadically, but I also I used to put a limit of five on it and now I try to blow through as many as I have time for. So it used to be that I have every Monday off, but Jim is not as kind so now when i have days <laughs> off i'll just throw up the the question banner it's up there now if people want to go over there but if it's not up feel free to send me a direct message i am one who responds and looks at every message i get so yeah feel free to reach out i'm a pretty open book strava is everything heart rate with power and distance and whatever you want to geek out on i don't hide anything there so you can also ask questions there if you're curious about what i did that day i'm happy to answer questions awesome well thanks a bunch alex uh we'll have you back on the podcast soon and for everybody that is going to go follow alex and everything else or follow his lifetime grand prix cheer for alex it's going to be really fun if you go into the events you'll get to see him it'll be great thanks alex talk to you soon thank you